We're going to turn today to John's gospel as uh, we take this up, having completed our study of Joshua. And as we come to John's gospel, uh, it's good for you to become acquainted uh, briefly, even before we read with the author. This is, of course, the Apostle John, who got to know Jesus Christ when he was a teenager. And he served as Jesus' uh, disciple then through the rest of his days. And we have uh, three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are at the beginning of your New Testament. And we often call these the synoptics. Uh, The word sin or the prefix sin means uh, uh, with, uh, has the idea of being like, and optics, uh, that's what we see. So they kind of come from the same eye, come from the same perspective. Uh, John's Gospel is written maybe 30 years after those Gospels were written, and he uh, saw the record that they had left and realized there's another angle, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the Lord wanted to give us on the life of the Lord Jesus. And so we'll see that there's more discourse, for instance, in the book of John. Uh, It's less biography, more theology, if you will, as John writes this Gospel. Uh, And he is especially focused on the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives us that as his purpose. So if you uh, would keep your your finger there in John chapter 1, if you're not there yet, go ahead and turn. Actually, one of the reasons this is very important is because uh, my mother was converted when she was in high school, and uh, her parents had come to faith uh, through uh, the study of the Gospel of John uh, a year or so before, and uh, so she was told to go open her Bible and look in the book of John, and she did that, and this has been a Bible that was given to her uh, many years before, and she opened it up and couldn't find uh, the Gospel of John. I think it was the, the first five chapters were actually missing because of a misprint. Uh, so if there's nothing else you, you get from this, we want to make sure that whatever copy of God's Word you have, uh, all of John is there. Uh, but as you find John 1, you can Uh, Park your finger there and then uh, wheel back with me to John chapter 20 because at the end of the book, John actually gives us his purpose for writing the book. And it's always good to know the purpose of an author who is writing something to you. Uh, But look at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John didn't write everything he could have written about Jesus, but he took these selected things and he put these down on paper for us so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. So then turn back to John chapter 1, where today we will read the prologue, these first 18 verses. And in one sense, what John is saying is, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in these first 18 verses, he's going to give you some of his conclusions before he moves into the evidences through the rest of the book. And we'll look at these 18 verses in just a moment, but let's pray before we do. Lord, we thank you that you have given us such a record, such a glorious record of the identity of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you've given this to us, not so that we would simply be fascinated by it, fascinating as it is, but you have given this record, this proclamation of your truth so that we might believe. 
and that by believing we might have life in his name. So, Lord, we thank you that these words are living and they are active. And we pray that your spirit would be active among us to breathe life into your people today. And we ask that you would use these words to that end. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's word. John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thus ends this reading of God's holy word, which we pray he would write on our hearts today and forever. As a pastor, one of the greatest things I get to do is I get to introduce people to each other. And uh, pastors don't have all of the kinds of skills that people like you have. Uh, In some ways, there may be great limits to the things that we're good at. But one of the things that's a delight to me is I meet somebody who maybe they need a cake baked. And I say, you know, I, I know exactly who you can go to to get a cake baked. Or someone needs flower arrangements and I know where to point them. Maybe other people uh, need some legal help. I say, well, I don't know exactly what you need, but I can introduce you to someone that might be able to help you or, or someone who has language needs. I can point them in a good direction. And the greatest joy, of course, for me as a pastor or for anyone else is to make a connection with you that won't simply help you get a cake baked or or get some flowers arranged, or get some legal work done, or work on languages, or connect you to a mechanic, or connect you to a realtor, or any other host of things that might meet a temporal need in your life. The greatest joy of my life is to be able to introduce people to the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what John has the great privilege of doing here in this book. And I have the great privilege of doing that today and in coming months. What we need to see, what you need to see as your greatest need of all is who Jesus is. 
And it becomes evident that you need to know who he is, even as we unfold uh, this passage that's here before us, because it begins to shine light on our needs. So as we look at these uh, introductory verses of the, of the Gospel of John, we want to get a sense of the, the burden that was on the apostle's heart. This was the one who had come to know Jesus Christ. He had laid his head upon his bosom. He had been the disciple that Jesus loved. And this same apostle is with our Lord in glory even today. And he still wants you to know the Lord of glory himself. So we want to ask a few questions as we look at John's uh, prologue here. We want to ask, first of all, where, where did Jesus come from? And then secondly, why did he come? Thirdly, how did he come? And then what does that mean for us? What kind of response is there that is required and desired as a result of this introduction that is being made? Well, we come to this first question, looking at the first five verses, where did Jesus come from? Uh, or, or maybe you might say, where did he get his start? And you realize this is a bad question, actually. But where did Jesus come from? Well, you, you see here in verse 1, in the very simplest of words, the Apostle John says, in the beginning was the word. One of the things that's so glorious about John's gospel is the, the very few number of words that he uses in total. Uh, unique vocabulary. It's a vocabulary of a very young child, in fact. And you see this right out of the gate. In the beginning was the word. And we know from verse 14 that the word that's spoken of here is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus has no beginning. He was in the beginning. He was in the beginning. And the apostle John reaffirms this in Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, the the end of his writings. He says of Jesus that he is the beginning and the end. We sang about it in uh, in Psalm 33 earlier, that it's by his word that he spoke the created world into existence. And what the Apostle John wants you to see here is that there never was a time that Jesus was not. He was in the beginning. And we're told here in verse 1 that not only in the beginning was the word, that the word was with God, and the word was God. John is presenting his conclusion to us after meeting Jesus, after being with him face to face. He's arrived at this conclusion that he wants you to know right out of the gate that Jesus is God himself. And of course, we have the mystery of the God as Trinity being presented to us here. He was with God and he was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so uh, we see, as we see in the rest of scripture, that there are three identified as God. And as we understand the scripture, these are three different persons, but they share one essence. And this is the mystery from which all other truth flows. And why is it that Jesus is described here as the word? Well, John is writing to a, a mix of Jew and Greek here. And for the Greeks, you know that uh, they believed that this word logos in Greek, um, from which we get many English words, is, uh, had the idea for them that uh, reason held all things together. That it was uh, the, the essence, the, the 
thing that was of greatest essence. And of course, the word to the Jew, uh, they would recognize as being of great significance and would recognize that God had brought the whole world into existence simply by the power of his word being spoken. And what is it that words do? Well, they communicate to us and they express. So why is Jesus spoken to us here as being the word? Well, it is because he is the the expression to us of who God is. He is the communication of the triune God to this world and to you and to me. You begin to understand why it's so important then that you would become acquainted with Jesus Christ and you would know his identity. Children, this is why you need to know what John writes because if you want to know God, you want to know what God is like, you need to know Jesus. Well, he's described for us here as being the word, the very uh, self-expression of God who comes from uh, eternity past. And he's also the creator, which becomes clear for us in verses, uh, verse three, especially it says all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Again, note this Jesus is eternally preexistent and not only is he preexistent, but he created everything in this universe. All things were made through him. All things were made through him. Now, as I've told you before, there was a time when I was about five years old and being a smart aleck like five-year-olds can be. I asked my parents, you know, who, who, who made everything? And he said, well, God made everything. And I thought I'd really get him. I looked at the house and I said, well, did God make this house? And I didn't really fully understand second causes and how they work and these sorts of things. But I I had to understand that, yes, God has made us to be creators of things, but we're always beginning with other materials, lumber from trees to build a house, Uh, iron and steel that that comes from ore that's drawn out of the earth. All of these things are, are the things that God already made. But how did Jesus create Well, he created all things out of nothing. The father working through the agency of the son. And so some people might ask, well, was Jesus created? We'll look at the second half of verse three. It says, without him was not anything made that was made. So get this clear. If there's anything you can see, if there's anything you can know about that was made, that's a whole category that God has set apart for us in this passage. And verse three tells us that there's nothing that was in this category of the things that were made that were not made by Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not in that category of things that were made. He made everything and there never was a time when he was not. So he's the creator of uh, the universe. And not only do we see that he had no beginning, but we see that in him, as verse four says, was life. You see, all life springs from him because he is life forever. And he always has had life. There was never a time when he did not. And we're told here that that life was the light of men. 
And this is significant to us because we are a people who constantly experience death and its pangs. We, we have loved ones who lose their lives. And there are times when we feel like life is just being taken away from us as various powers and capacities are stripped from us. And those who are getting older experience this physically. Your, your body just doesn't do what it used to do. And sometimes it's not only the uh, loss of physical ability, but it can be emotional or it can be relational as relationships are stripped away from you. And you feel as though you're hollowed out. You feel as the psalmist did when we were singing Psalm 6, that, that life is simply being taken out of our bones. This is never true with the Lord Jesus Christ. In him was life. And we're told that the life was the light of men. Jesus came in order to shine this light. And we'll look at more of that in just a moment. But then verse five tells us that the light shines in the darkness. And you'll notice that there's something that has happened here in terms of the tense in these words. This is now present. It is ongoing. It is something that remains. The light continues to shine. What John is getting at here, the the reason he speaks this way is because he's telling you that you need to know not simply someone who lived 2,000 years ago. Sometimes you're going through a problem in life and someone will tell you, uh, you ought to read a biography of such and such a person. You get to know them and that'll really help you in your current situation as you learn from their example. But we're told here that the light shines. Jesus continues to glow brightly. He is not a man who is dead, whose life and example you need to get to know so that you can be sort of helped and assisted to stumble through life. No, you need to get to know him because as John bore witness to personally, he is raised from the dead and he continues to shine in all of his glorious brightness today. The light shines. Get this straight. It's not that the light shone. The light shines. And we need to have our eyes open to that today. And this is because there never was a time when Jesus was not. There is life in him and this life is for you. John wanted you to be convinced of this and I want you to be convinced of this today, dear friends. That you wouldn't walk out of here without having this firmly fixed in your mind. And notice in verse five here that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You just have to look at the last 2,000 years of world history and you can see that this is very evidently the case. There, There may be times when people hate the light of the Lord Jesus Christ and they seek to gun down and to murder and to extinguish the light of the Lord Jesus in his people, but they have yet to succeed. The light continues to burn and to shine. And so he is uh, one, as Sandy Wilson said, who is qualified to be life giver to us even still because he's outside of space and time and because he has now entered into space and time. And this is the one that John is introducing to us. So we learn a little bit of Jesus' origin and we realize he didn't have one. But he has come to us. In fact, we have come into existence because he is. 
And now he has stepped into this created order that he has made. And why did he come? Secondly, second question here. We see this in verses 6 through 13. Well, uh, we're, we're told in verse 6 that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And, and this is, in one sense, where the synoptic gospels often begin, right? They begin with the incarnation of Jesus. They begin with John the Baptist. And we know that whenever someone famous comes to town, whenever there's a dignitary, uh, that person doesn't simply step up onto the stage, but there's someone who introduces them, first of all. And so John the Baptist is uh, uh, the one who was sent from God. He is the most famous of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, He's the one who introduces Jesus to the stage. And in verse 7, John writes, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. And here's where we get to the purpose. Why is it that Jesus came? Why did John come announcing this? That all might believe through him. We read John's purpose statement from chapter 20 at the outset. You see that he's weaving in this same theme. Why is he writing this? He's writing this because of the reason that Jesus came. It is so that all might believe through him. Now, John, we're told, wasn't the light. He's simply there to announce the light. He's simply there to bear witness about the light. And we're told in verse 9 that the true light, which gives light to everyone, and this uh, likely has the the meaning here from the outset as we look at these first five verses and then this passage, that the, the light is shining in the world, whether people respond to it positively or not. Uh, He is uh, glowing. He is shining this light upon the earth. And uh, he's come to give light to everyone in the world. But then... Look at the turn that is taken in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. This is an astounding thing. The creator of the universe, the most famous person who has ever lived, the most significant person who has ever lived, came into the world, but the world was hostile to him and didn't recognize him. Now, I don't know what celebrity you would be most interested in meeting, but people get autographs from the people that they're most interested in meeting, not only so that they can meet them and talk with them, but so that they can have a little memento that they prove that they met this celebrity. People line up and they wait for hours on end simply to catch a glimpse of their favorite stars. But we're told that Jesus came into the world and the world that was made through him didn't know him. It had rejected him. And we're still in verse 11. We're told he came to his own, to his own people. He came to the Jewish people who had received the oracles of God. All the covenants, the prophecies about the Messiah who was to come. And his own people did not receive him. And we can think about this in terms of people even within the church today. Jesus has come. And yet they blow off the one who is the word. As evidenced by people like my mom, not even knowing that the first five chapters of a book of her Bible were missing. Utter ignorance 
We simply turn aside. It's an astounding thing. But Jesus came so that all might believe. And we're told in verses 12 and 13 that to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we'll look at those in more detail in just a moment. But just realize for a moment the purpose for which Jesus came. He didn't come into this world because he just was looking for something cool to do. He didn't come into this world uh, just so that we could study him as some sort of far-off object. Jesus came so that all might believe through him. He came because he's interested in the hearts of people like you. Creator of the universe, and he cares about communicating with you. So this is why he came. Well, how did he come? We're told here in verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this would have been utterly astounding and repulsive to Greeks who had a very strong dichotomy between the immaterial world and the material. The thought that a spirit could take on flesh was just something that seemed impossible to them. And even for many Jews, they thought of God as being so different, so other that they could not conceive of God stepping into his falling, fallen creation. But we're told here that Jesus, that the word became flesh. Here we have the, the two natures of Jesus in one divine person. And it's not that Jesus uh, sort of simply uh, uh, took on a human body as in God being the spirit that dwelt inside of him and that his external flesh was his human side, so to speak. No, Jesus is fully God, fully man, united in one person. And he came and we're told in verse 14 that he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And you teenagers have uh, been studying the tabernacle in the last class. And children, if you want to draw a picture of this, you draw a picture of the tabernacle there in the wilderness in the middle of God's people. This was God's dwelling place with his people. This was a, a place where people could come and they could have limited access to God, right? There were all kinds of provisions and protections to keep people from coming into the Holy of Holies because they knew and because God wanted them to understand that he is a holy God and that sinful creatures simply cannot come in. But in Jesus Christ, we have unlimited access to God because he came and took on this flesh this flesh that would be torn apart at the end of his earthly life so that he might be the sacrifice. He might fulfill what was required in the tabernacle that a sacrifice be offered in the place of sinners. And he came as God in the flesh to provide that atonement that would satisfy the wrath of God so that we might have life. He was willing to give his life up so that ours might be gained. Well, Leon Morris, uh, one commentator says of verse 14, he says, in one short shattering expression, John unveils the great idea at the heart of Christianity. That the word became flesh so that you might come to know him and so that you might Believe. 
This ought to simply lead us to worship. To stand or to kneel in awe and amazement that he has come to dwell among us. Not giving us, as some have described, a sort of halfway grace that says, I'll come halfway down to you and and you now work yourself halfway up to meet me. No, Jesus came and he took on human flesh. He became man so that we might have life. And of course, this union is such an amazing thing. Uh, It's an amazing thing to us because that which was outside of space and time took on flesh and blood so that we might have life. And if you think about the words of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, we have to scratch our heads even more in amazement because in those verses we read, a voice says, cry. And I said, that is Isaiah, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, the breath, of the, the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You notice the contrast there? Flesh fades like grass. It dies. We have borne witness to this fact with Tommy's injury in recent weeks, right? He's lost part of his vocal cords. In this sense, the the flesh has withered and it can't be restored. We can understand that. And we can understand that the word of our God abides forever. But how do these two come together? They come together in Jesus Christ, who has the power to make flesh never die, but rather to be raised again. And this is why we worship before the Lord in awe, that he would come to us, that he would dwell among us. Well, John says, we have seen his glory. How did he come? He came in humiliation, and yet the apostles saw his glory uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, there were other times where uh, the disciples saw something of his glory, but especially there at the Transfiguration. Uh, We have seen his glory, and this is glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when the Son is revealed to you, When the Son of God is revealed to you, it's even more glorious than looking at the sun in the sky and it is too much for us to behold. But what is it that we are told that he is full of grace and truth? And this is why John is so eager for you to know him. He notes in verse 15 that John bore witness about him. Uh, He he did come in the flesh. Um, The one from, uh, from all eternity has come. And what is it that happens for the people of God? How did he come? He comes so that from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And he says in verse 17 that the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Nobody's ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. But Jesus has made him known. Grace upon grace. The apostle is saying here, the law was given through Moses. And that was really an incredibly gracious thing. The 
phrase here, grace upon grace, is something that has been a source of, of great commentary for uh, many scholars for a long time. It's a, literally grace instead of grace. And the idea here seems to be that he's saying, look, we received grace because the word was revealed to us in the Old Testament. The law was given. We came to know something of what God is like as he communicated himself to us. But we've got something even better now. It is grace upon grace. Grace instead of grace. It's, it's kind of like a double chocolate cake if you, if you like chocolate cake, right? I mean, it would be a good thing to get chocolate cake. But if you get a, a double chocolate, that's, that's chocolate upon chocolate. And you know what they do with it after that? They take chocolate icing and they put it on top of that. And then maybe they sprinkle some chocolate chips on top of that. And like a drizzle of some sort of syrup. Chocolate upon chocolate upon chocolate. And friends, we're talking here about something far more glorious. But we received grace through the Old Testament. We received far more through Jesus Christ. And his glory, his grace, and his truth, it's for you. And it's for me. And he's living today. So what's the right response? Well, it's given to us in verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You're called to receive him. To believe in him. Not to hear this word and cast it off. Now, John does lead us into this great mystery. How is this possible for sinners? How is it possible that we would not be like the rest of the world? Well, it's, it's ultimately not something we have the power to do in and of ourselves. It's, it's, we're, we're like little babies. Like, do we decide when we're going to be born? Do we decide when we're going to come into the world? No, we don't. For us to be born into the world is not our decision. And the second birth works the same way. This is only possible, as we see, according to verse 13, not by the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. But when God causes us to see the light, when Jesus Christ is introduced to us and our eyes are opened, what is it that we do? We receive him. We believe upon his name and we become children of God. And this is your calling today, that that you wouldn't blow him off, but you'd recognize he has come to be your elder brother. He has come to people who are dead in their trespasses and sins and who are feeling their death on a daily basis, who feel that power and relationships and uh, all kinds of good things are being stripped away from them and who recognize that they are ultimately going to face physical death, if not worse things first. Jesus has come so that you might simply receive him by faith. And believe in him and be children of God. John was writing knowing that he couldn't convince anyone in his own power. And I'm here to speak to you today saying I can't convince any of you in my power either. God has to open your eyes to see Jesus. But here he is for you. And he calls you to contemplate these things, to probe and to poke and to get to know who he is. And there's a very real sense when I introduce people, one of my greatest joys is not only introducing people, but saying, now it's time for me to get out of the way. 
And that's what it's time for me to do now. Because you need to know not what James says about Jesus. You need to know Jesus himself. And what you have the opportunity to do this afternoon and the joy and the delight is simply to pull aside in your own quiet place and reread this passage and keep reading through the book of John and come to know Jesus Christ yourself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you've revealed uh, yourself through your son. We thank you, Lord, that the light shines in the darkness. It still does. Thank you that the word became flesh and he still is. And we thank you that he is life and that in him we have life. And so I pray, Lord, that as we work through this book in coming weeks, that you'll cause us to draw nearer to the Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would cause people who have never come to know Jesus Christ, who have never really understood his identity, that they would do so. And we ask, Lord, that even today, as we meditate upon these words, that you would cause us to draw near to him and that we would experience grace upon grace as we would meet the one who is full of glory and who is full of grace and truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.